Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. I realize now why everyone was laughing at me. I was told that I, I slipped and said, welcome to Redeemer. And for those of you who don't know, I was, I was serving at a church called Redeemer for the previous 10 years. So if you were looking to be at Trinity Church, you are in the right place. <laughs> welcome to Trinity. Let me pray for our time of listening and learning God's word together. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that as we listen... That as I speak, Lord, that it would be your words that go forth. You promise that when your word goes forth, it never returns empty, it never returns void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. So accomplish your purposes in our hearts and lives this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Today we begin a new series, and the title of this series is going to be called The Groundwork for the Soul. Groundwork. Groundwork is preliminary work. It's foundational work. It's what we do before we move on to a big project or some big endeavor. The season of Lent in the church calendar is a season where we engage in what I would call groundwork for our souls, where we look at our foundations, where we look in a season of prayer and reflection and examination about what God is doing beneath the surface of our lives. Um, Lent. So Lent, maybe some of you are familiar with this season and some are less familiar. It begins on Wednesday, so we are not officially in the season of Lent right now, but it begins on Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, which is March 1st. Something I know Trinity has observed in the past, I have observed this in my own life and in my ministry, and there's, there's great value, there's great impact, I believe, in having a 40-day season that's set aside, that's dedicated to prayer, 
fasting, repentance for meditation on Scripture, and focus acts of mercy for, for the poor. That's what Lent is all about. And one of the misconceptions about Lent is that it's all about spiritual gloominess, or it's just about self-denial. And Lent is a very sober season of reflection, but there's a reason why it's 40 days. Lent is the 40-day period from Ash Wednesday until Easter. The number 40 in the scriptures is very significant. The number 40 refers to events like the flood, like Israel's wandering in the wilderness, like Jesus' 40 days of temptation in the wilderness for himself. In 40, the number 40 in the Bible is symbolic for seasons of preparation. Seasons where God is doing groundwork, he's getting the foundation ready to do something new. And so while Lent is a season of reflection and examination, it's also a season of preparation individually and I would say communally for us as a church where we'd be seeking the Lord. What kind of groundwork are you laying in my soul right now, God? And what kind of groundwork are you laying in our church? A season of seeking God for those questions. So what we're going to be doing is looking at the Gospel of Matthew chapters. 3 and 4. So we're just picking up where we left off in Advent. For Advent, we looked at chapters 1 and 2 in the Gospel of Matthew, and so now we're just going to jump back in uh, where we left off. And Matthew 3 and 4, I think, are very appropriate for Lenten reflection because they are all about the groundwork that was being laid for Jesus' mission, the groundwork that was being laid for his public ministry. So as such, I think they're a good place for us as we ask and as we look and seek the Lord for what kind of groundwork is he laying in us, personally, in us as a church. I need to ask a favor. If somebody can turn that monitor, that TV on, I turned it on this morning and it turned off. Just You have to stand on that pew and turn it on, because I have to look at that later on. Um, there's some things that I've put in the presentation that aren't in my notes. I want you to pull out the passage and look at it with me, because before we look at it, I want to set the context for chapters 3 and 4. So like we said, chapters 1 and 2, they're about the birth of Jesus, they're about the infancy of Jesus, and now in 3 and 4, we're looking at how he comes onto the scene in his public ministry. So this is like 25 plus year jump ahead in time, between chapters 2 and 3 in the Gospel of Matthew. And the first thing we notice is that at the beginning... The groundwork for Jesus' ministry actually didn't begin with him, but it began with somebody else entirely. This person, this guy that we call John the Baptist. So the first thing we see is that in order for people to be prepared to meet Jesus, then and now, God says there needs to be a forerunner. There needs to be someone to do some preparation. So I know we call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, but I think maybe a better title for him would be John the Preparer. Baptism was his method. That's what he did. But his purpose was preparation. The people in Israel of the day, they needed to be prepared to encounter this person, Jesus, as he came onto the scene. And what's fascinating to me is I was thinking about it this week, about John the Baptist. Sometimes we just kind of gloss over John the Baptist, and let me just get to Jesus. So why did all four gospel writers begin with John? 
Now, all four gospel writers tell the story of Jesus from different angles and different perspectives. They include often different things, and sometimes they overlap. But one thing all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, overlap on is say, before I'm going to tell you about Jesus, before we get into the ministry and the mission of Jesus, and you see his story play out, first, I want you to spend some time with John. Spend some time with this crazy figure, John the Baptist, John the preparer. Anytime something new or big happens in our life, it's always good for us to have some time to prepare. Like if we're welcoming a new child into our life, it's good to have nine months to get ready for that child. If we are starting school, often there's an orientation period for us to figure out how does this school work and how am I going to find my classes and that sort of thing. If we start a new job, there's orientation and there's training. I think the same is true the gospel writers say, for us when we encounter Jesus. And this applies, I think, to all seasons and all stages in the journey of faith. Some of us, when it comes to the story of Jesus, if we are honest, we say, this is very familiar to me. It's kind of become stale and boring. I've heard these stories since I was a kid. The gospel writers say, why don't you spend some time with John first? Or for some of us, we might be in a place in our lives where we just, we really need the guidance of Jesus for what we're facing. It might be something very difficult we're going through. It might be something very hard for us, and we're seeking and we're desiring, Jesus, I want you to be with me in this. I think the gospel writers say, let's spend some time with John first. Or we may be here and we're just investigating Christianity. Everything's new to us about Jesus and Christianity. It's all unfamiliar. And the gospel writers say, let's start with John. If you're following along and taking notes, when I look at this passage through really four steps of preparation, four points. The first one is trek. The first step is to trek into the wilderness. So this is where the story takes place, and the setting is very significant. Verse 3 there in the passage is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 40, and back many hundreds of years prior, Isaiah said, the wilderness will be the place to look for God's great coming, God's great entrance into the world to do his great work of restoration. It's what the story of the world is pointing towards. It's what we're all longing for, for God to come and make things right. Isaiah says, look in the wilderness. That's where it will start. Just like first, when Israel was redeemed, The nation of Israel was taken out of Egypt. They passed through the wilderness before they came into the promised land. Isaiah said, it's going to be like that. It's going to be like a second Exodus journey. It's going to have to travel through the wilderness. When I say trek to the wilderness, I don't know what comes to your mind. Some of you are like, yes, the wilderness. I love camping. I love the outdoors. There's forests and trees, and it's peaceful, and it's great. Well, that's not the wilderness in Israel. The wilderness in Israel is the desert. So when, think, when you think wilderness, think rocks, think dirt, and think barrenness and nothing. That's where the process of preparation begins. Why is that? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but I think I want to highlight two. Two things happen to us when we go into the wilderness. One, first, we are stripped of our comfort. In verse 5 of chapter 3, we see that all 
of Judea, all the surrounding countryside, there was a buzz about John. There's this guy out there in the desert. You got to go see him. And they go out to him. It says they're going out to him. And that's significant. John did not come to them. He said, you got to come out here to me in the wilderness. In times of compromise throughout the history of Israel, the false prophets, you could find them in the royal courts. They were very comfortable. They were in the places of power and luxury. But the faithful prophets during these times were driven out into the wilderness. So if you wanted to hear the truth, if you wanted to get a realistic assessment of what God is up to, you needed to go out of your comfort zone and go into the desert. And there's a lesson here for us. When we're too comfortable, when we're too cozy, we all have the tendency to drift into spiritual dullness, lethargy. And so we have to go out. We have to get out of our normal routines. We have to come out of our comfort zone, out of our busyness, out of our patterns of indulgence and go into the wilderness. This is why during Lent the practice of fasting is important. It's saying I will forego something of comfort to me so I can attune my senses which get so dull sometimes to God and his voice. It's not only the wilderness setting that was uncomfortable, but also John was a very uncomfortable person to be around. If you look at how he's described, it says he was wearing camel hair clothing and he was eating locusts and wild honey. And that was not like the newest hipster clothing and the newest like healthy fad diet. This was like somebody you wouldn't say, I want to go spend time with you and hang out with you, John. He was an uncomfortable person. And John, in his attire, in his diet, was embodying the kind of response that God was looking for. He was saying, you know how radical a break you need from life as usual. In order to be attuned, in order to be ready to hear Jesus' message, he just said, look at me. This is the kind of break that you need. He, forego, he forewent and, and to forego his, his possessions, his comfort, his status. He was in the wilderness. So that's the first reason. We're stripped of our comfort in the wilderness. Secondly, we are shaken out of our complacency. Places where we are smug, places where we feel superior to others. Another part of the setting here is significant. So it's not just the wilderness, and it's not just John. It says John was at the Jordan River. And that also is a very important part of the story of Israel because the Jordan River was the place where Israel first entered into the land. They came out of the wilderness, and when they crossed the Jordan, they were in the land that promised that they would settle in. So John is saying, we're coming out to the wilderness, we're coming out to the Jordan because we're all starting all over. We're starting afresh, everyone. That's what it meant to be at the Jordan. And so the one who will be prepared to encounter Jesus is the person who's not ashamed to start over. To start at the beginning, again, and again, and again. Not only were they in the wilderness, not only were they being baptized in the Jordan, um, they were willing to undergo this whole symbolic gesture of baptism. Now, what was baptism? What did it mean during this time? Baptism in this time in Israel was practiced for Gentile converts into Judaism. 
So what John was doing was very radical and very shocking. They were saying, why are we? We are Jewish people. We don't need to be baptized. John was saying, exactly. We are all outsiders into what God is doing in this new work. This one you are about to meet, none of us are ready to meet him. We're all on a level playing field. We all have to start over. And so it was very humbling for the people to submit to baptism because they were saying, there's no difference between me and anyone else. I'm just like an outsider starting at the beginning. So trekking to the wilderness means setting aside whatever it is that makes us feel superior to other people. It might be our theological knowledge, how much we know about the Bible. It might be our moral goodness. It might be our conservative approach to life. It might be our progressive approach to life. It might be our achievements. We have to set all that aside and be willing to be beginners. And that needs to regularly happen in our lives so that we encounter Jesus afresh and hear what he has to say to us. This is in the Kapoor household. This is baseball season. Two of our kids are playing baseball. We have four boys. And so we've been playing baseball. I think this is probably our sixth or seventh year. And so, you know, you have to shake the, the, the dust off with fielding and throwing and hitting, probably hitting especially. And so our kids are getting back into practicing, rusty a little bit and hitting. So I said, what we need to do is we need to get a tee. You set up a tee and practice, set up a tee and practice. And they're like, no, I'm not going to hit off a tee. That's tee ball. That's beginner stuff. And I tell them, did you know that your favorite players hit off the tee like 150, 200, hundreds of times in spring training right now, Major League Baseball players are hitting off the tee. They're going back to tee ball. Why? Because it's back to the beginning. It's back to the fundamentals. That's why they're in the Major Leagues, because they're not ashamed to continue working on the basics of their craft. That applies spiritually to us as well. We need to be willing to start at the beginning. Last thought on wilderness, that's important, I think. There are two types of wilderness seasons in our lives. When we're stripped of comfort, when we're shaken out of complacency, there are the times of unchosen wilderness, and there are times of chosen and intentional wilderness. The unchosen wilderness times are when the trials and the troubles of life strip and shake the things that we look to for comfort the things we look to for security and control of our lives. Chosen wilderness times are seasons like Lent, when we choose a path of self-denial or examination where we intentionally fast from things. In both, we need to remember that seasons of deprivation are seasons of preparation. That God, though it might feel like he is not there, that he is absent in the wilderness, he is present. He is working. He's working in ways he can only work when we're there in the wilderness. I want to share a quote from Dan Allender on this. He says, our spiritual journey must lead through the desert or else our healing will be of our own will and wisdom. It is in the silence of the desert that we hear our dependence on noise. It's in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments to the trinkets and baubles that we cling to for security and pleasure. The desert shatters our soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or die. So that's step one. Trek into the wilderness. 
And when we trek into the wilderness, we're ready for the second part of the preparation process to hear John's message, what he's saying. It's simplified there in verse 2, just in one sentence. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The way I'm paraphrasing it for step two is turn completely around. I want to look at John's message in two parts. First, the word repent, and then the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we hear the word repent, we need to kind of disinfect that word. Because when we hear that word, what we often hear when we hear the word repent from a preacher is stop doing bad and do good. You're not religious enough. You need to try harder. Be a better person. But that's not what repent means. Repent in the, in the Greek means to change your mind about something, to change your mindset. And even more important, the background in the Hebrew language is a favorite word of the prophets. It was the word shub in the Hebrew, which means turn, come back, turn around. Repent is not God saying, you are bad, be good or else. Repent is God saying, you are lost. Turn around. Come back. You're going the wrong way. The other day, I was very lost. I was going to a meeting at Sheepfold, which is one of our Compassion Ministry uh, partners. And I typed in the wrong address. And so I kept... On my GPS, on my Google Maps, I was driving down Catella and said, take a U-turn and head east on Catella. Take a U-turn and head west on Catella. And I kept driving in circles all around until I finally figured out, like 30 minutes later, that I had the wrong address typed in. Repentance is a U-turn. It's about, it's about the direction your life is headed. It's about the direction you're facing and turning around to wholly and completely face God. One of the most important aha moments in my spiritual life has to do with repentance. And really, it's a complete reversal of the understanding I had of repentance. When I was beginning to grow and I was beginning to learn and my passion to follow Christ was beginning, I had this belief that I thought was what the Bible taught that said, the more you grow, the less you will repent. You'll be growing, you'll be maturing, you'll be getting better, and so there'll be less junk that you have to deal with in your life, less areas where you'll be sinful and broken. But that brought me a lot of discouragement because as I grew and learned more about God and more about myself, I started to see actually there's more parts of my life that need work, serious work, that are sinful and broken. And then I realized that I had it all backward, that it's not the more you grow, the less you repent, the more you grow the more you will repent. The more we grow in our understanding of God's holiness and God's beauty, the more we understand about ourselves and our own brokenness and sin, the more we'll need to be taking U-turns, regular U-turns in our lives. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses to the door that began this, the Reformation, He had these 95 statements that he wanted to get the attention of the church leadership on. And the first of those statements was this. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he wanted the whole life of believers to be a life of repentance. 
There's an author that I really appreciate. His name's Chuck DeGroat. He was a professor at the seminary where I went in the counseling department. So he's a counselor, and he's a professor of counseling. Um, he says when he talks to people, he lays out two, two graphs. One is the life that we want, and we can put that graph up. I did my best to reproduce these. What we hope life will look like, the life we want. That life will just be a straight journey upward. Things will get better. Things will go smoother. I will be a better person, and life will be good. That's the life that I want, that we hope life will look like. And then he puts up another diagram and says, this is what growth is like in reality. It's a big U. But the way up passes through the way down. The way to growth happens to pass through the wilderness. In the wilderness, sometimes we, be, we become angry with God. We become disappointed. We say, God, why isn't my life like that first picture? The line that just goes straight up. What are you doing? What is happening? But could it be in the wilderness and in the trials and the troubles you're experiencing now that God is calling you to come back, to turn around, that there is a U-turn that he is calling you to? And as you turn to him, he says, this is what I've been wanting to give you all along, myself. That's repent. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Last week, we talked about living in our fast-paced lives. We were talking about Sabbath, our busy lifestyles, where we suffer from hurry sickness. We have a sense of urgency about so many things in our lives. Yet often we lack the same urgency when it comes to the matters of our soul. John says, my message is the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. Now is the time to respond. So we have a false sense of urgency about matters of secondary importance, but a lack of urgency about things of primary importance. John says in Jesus, God's rest, restorative Reconciling kingdom has come. And his message is meant to restore a sense of urgency to our spiritual lives. And so we need these seasons of repentance where we ask, where, God, am I headed in the wrong direction? What do I need to turn away from in my life in order to turn wholly to you? That's step number two. Turn completely around. So John steps for spiritual preparation, trek to the wilderness. Am I too comfortable? Am I too complacent? Turn completely around. Where do I need to make a U-turn? And thirdly, take an honest assessment. What do I need to see about my life that I'm not seeing? So here we get to, to verses 7 through 10. John sees Pharisees and the Sadducees coming out. These are the religious leaders of the day. And he has some very in-your-face, very challenging things to say to them. The people who were the most religious the most moral people, the best people of the day. And so this is very challenging for my Christian friends, for us, and even more so for those in any place of spiritual influence or leadership, the people who thought they were the closest to God and most prepared for his kingdom. John says we're the furthest from God and the least prepared for his kingdom. Why is that? Well, in part, it was because they were using the, the wrong measures to assess their faith. And John gives them new metrics. 
to assess where they're at with God. There are three of them that I want to highlight. First is fruitfulness. In verse 8, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down. Fruit is the natural result of health, of life. And spiritual fruit, John says, is a natural result of our repentance, of genuine repentance, of living a life turned toward God. And so and fruit in the Bible is one of the most common metaphors for healthy spiritual life, for Christian growth. And so we think about that, that image of fruit. We know that it means a tree, when it's bearing fruit, it can't fake it. There's either, there's either fruit or there's no fruit. A tree bearing fruit can't rush it. It takes time to cultivate fruit. And a tree can't force it. A tree can try very hard to push the fruit out, but it comes through having deep roots and good soil. So things Jesus wants us to assess. Not our knowledge, not how much we know. Not first our participation or activity, how much we are doing. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had all these things, but he says, I want you to assess your life by fruit. What might this fruit look like? It's summarized in many different ways throughout the Bible, but in Galatians 5.22, the Apostle Paul says, this is the fruit of the Spirit. Here's how you can assess your life. Am I more loving or am I more self-focused? Am I joyful or discontent? Am I a person of peace or broken relationships around me? Am I growing in patience or am I irritated and short with people? Am I gentle or unapproachable? Am I kind or judgmental? Do I have self-control or am I ruled by unhealthy compulsions? If there's no fruit, John is saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, come back to step one. Start in the wilderness and move forward from there. Go to repentance. The second test he gives them is the test of presumption. In verse 9, he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves. Presumption means assuming something that isn't true. And so the way that this applies to us in our Christian lives is that there's no person who can say, of course I'm a Christian. Just look at this. Of course I am a Christian because of this. There is no one that can have that kind of presumption because grace means that we all say, I don't know how I'm a Christian. Me? It is a miracle. God is gracious. Somehow it is true. Even me. I am a Christian. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees had to learn to repent, not just of their sin, but of their goodness. Not just of their sin, but of their self-righteousness. Anything that led them to presume that they were better than other people. Third test. If you look back at verse 7, the first thing he says to them is he says, you brood of vipers. That is, a bunch of baby vipers. And you might be going, what is that all about? It sounds pretty intense to call people baby vipers, but what, why? Why would he use that terminology? But in the day, there was a story that went around about vipers that said when the baby vipers are born, they kill and eat their mother as revenge for her killing their father. So that was a story on the street about vipers. And what that meant was John is saying you are not just dangerous to yourself. 
you are dangerous to other people. You, the leaders, are supposed to be leading God's people in repentance. But you are a danger to other people because of your presumption. To be a leader, according to John, is to be a lead repenter. To be a leader is to be the first one who says, I need to make a U-turn. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? That's the test of leadership. Last point. We trek to the wilderness, come out of comfort and complacency, turn towards God in repentance, take an honest assessment. This is very challenging stuff. This is a very heavy stuff it can feel like. And when we're in a season where God is doing this kind of groundwork in our souls, or when we're in a season like Lent, we need to remember why John has us walking through these steps of preparation. We need to remember what John's whole life mission was about. He's saying, I'm doing all of this for your good. I'm doing all of this for you so you can be prepared to meet Jesus. So I can lead you to him. He says, ultimately, I can't change you. Only he can. I can't transform you. Only he can. He says, I came with the baptism of repentance. I came to prepare you. But he comes with the Holy Spirit and fire. The fourth point is that we need to trust in his refining purpose. Some commentaries, as I was reading, call this sermon by John a fire sermon. This is, a fire, this is John's fire sermon. Why is he preaching a fire sermon? Why would you want to meet someone who brought fire? Fire can do two things. Fire can consume and destroy, or it can cleanse and bring new life. One of the moments in my life that was like one of the most shocking moments of awe and wonder in my life was when after the 2007 fires in San Diego, I went to help um, with one of the homes that was burned down in, the, in one of those fires. And so the mission was to go to clean up a little bit, but just to find anything that was sal salvageable. But when I showed up to the, the place where this house was, it was just completely level. Every single thing in the house was reduced to these little pebble-sized fragments. And I was just in awe of the power of fire to destroy. But fire can also cleanse. In Florida, I think probably here in California too, Florida where I grew up, they would do controlled burns. The national forest would do controlled burns in the forest. And you're driving by a forest, and it's on fire. That's horrible. And you realize, oh, that's a controlled burn. That's something that's necessary to bring life in the forest, to preserve life. All the decay, all the stuff that prevents life is burned away, so new life can spring up. This fire that Jesus bring, brings, it either refines us, or it reduces our life to the rubble by consuming everything that's not built on Jesus and faith. That's the challenging message of this sermon of John the Baptist. Jesus' fire means that all that is evil, all that is wrong, all that is sinful in the world and in us must be consumed. It must be destroyed. He is saying, I will take everything in you that is wrong. I will take everything in you that is broken and sinful. I need to consume it with fire. 
And John thought, when Jesus came on the scene, he said, he is coming with consuming fire. But what's interesting about John is that even though he was Jesus' chosen preparer, he had a few big moments of doubt when it came to Jesus. The first is just a, a few verses later. Jesus came and said, I need to be baptized by you, John. John said, no, you are the mightier one. You're not going to be baptized by me. And Jesus said, yes, I need your baptism first. Why? This was radical. The one who, Jesus, who John said, I can't even untie or carry around his sandals. Jesus said, I'm coming as a servant. I'm coming to identify with humanity first. Not first with fire and judgment. And then later on, John's in prison, and he sends a message out to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, are you sure you are the one that is to come? Underneath his question is, Jesus, where's the fire? I thought that was coming. Jesus is bringing healing. Jesus is bringing restoration, but there's no fire. What John was missing in his understanding was the cross. The one whose sandals we are not worthy to carry became a servant to us, to the uttermost, to stand in our place, to bear the judgment of fire for us. So that his work of bringing fire into our lives, so his baptism of fire wouldn't consume us, it wouldn't destroy us, but it would cleanse us and it would refine us. So in seasons where God is doing groundwork in our lives, in seasons of wilderness, in seasons of repentance and confession, because Jesus took the consuming fire of God's judgment, these seasons are for our cleansing, for our refining, for the deepening of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this challenging passage. We know that sometimes your word meets us in challenging ways to show us areas of our life where we need repentance, where we need confession. I pray for all of us during this season that you would do your refining work in our hearts. It may be through very difficult things we're going through, and I pray you would be present to comfort and sustain us as we walk through those seasons. And it may be through seasons where we intentionally take time to seek you, to bring our lives before you. And I pray that you would meet us there, that you would refine us, and that in our hearts we would cling all the more strongly to Jesus, the one who loved us, the one who served us, so that our lives would reflect him. And we pray in his name. Amen.